Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards, and his right-hand man, protege, and all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Hence, those are my titles. to my right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you on radio, probably to your left. Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Happy Friday. This is A Reason for Hope. For those of you who are new, this is a Bible answer program where people, you, the audience, uh, can engage with our teaching staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, where we are live streaming from in Tucson, Arizona. We live stream to multiple platforms that you can engage with us. You can just join us on the live stream, use the chat to <clears throat> ask a question if it's sincere and it's about the Bible or the Christian worldview, even comparative religions, even if you're a skeptic or agnostic, we'd encourage you to join us and engage with us. We'd really appreciate it. So just go to Facebook and you can look for us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or you can just go straight to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson and just use the comment box, ask your questions. You can also catch us on YouTube. We simultaneously live stream to that platform and uh, <clears throat> just go to YouTube and search for A Reason for Hope. Look for the little red dove there and uh, you'll find us. Or you can go directly to youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Now, if you want to avoid social media altogether, you can also st still engage. You can go to our website, that's calvarychristianfellowship.com, and just hit that Watch Live tab, and you can join the live stream that way. And again, there's a nifty little chat box, uh, also a button to make prayer requests. So if there's something really weighing heavily on your heart and you'd like to ask for prayer, we'd be happy to go before the Lord on your behalf and do that. So if that's something you'd like to take advantage of, feel free. <clears throat> and again, that's our website, as well as a place where you can go and go into all our archives and go to look at past messages, engage with our community. And speaking of engagement, I'd encourage you, if you are part of our community or would like to be a part of our community, to download our app. You can go to the Apple or Google Play Store and just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you see that red icon with the little white dove, that's us. You can download it, you can see our community calendar, you can listen to live streams, you can listen to past messages. It's got a nifty little digital Bible where you can highlight text, take notes. It's a really helpful tool, especially if you're a family with kids. Uh, you can uh, use that to keep track of what's going on with our children's ministry and, and so much more. Also, if you'd like to ask a question of this program, A Reason for Hope, and you want to do so perhaps a little more discreetly, you may do so by simply emailing us directly. I will keep my eye on that inbox throughout the program. So if you want to email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com, that's all letters, no numbers, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Last but not least, we'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor. You can even engage by asking questions there uh, at, on the X platform, formerly Twitter, and our senior pastor's handle is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. Very entertaining and very informative, especially if you like to keep track on what's going on in the world as far as uh, how current world events apply to Bible prophecy and things like that. I'd encourage you to follow Pastor Scott on Twitter and uh, also ask a question and we'll answer it right here on the program. Before we get to your questions and we talk about, uh, before we get to our sort of introductory topic of the day, We'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Let's do that. Pastor Scott? Yeah, Lord, thank you so much for your presence here with us. 
And Lord, it is your presence uh, here in this program we long for. We desire, Lord, that as your word goes forth, your Holy Spirit would speak deep things into the hearts of those that are joining us, not just building them up in their knowledge, uh, but uh, allowing them to know uh, what it means to have a genuine heart-to-heart relationship with you that you made possible at such a price, Lord, by giving your Son, him dying for us and rising from the dead so that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you for this privilege, and thank you for this opportunity to be able to draw close to you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Happy Rosh Hashanah, and I understand that there's uh, a little bit of stir, uh, people online, or there's always people online saying something strange or yes, uh, attention <laughs> it, getting. Online is always stirring, but uh, <laughs> Shana Tova to those of us joining us, especially those might be joining us uh, in Israel. This is uh, Rosh Hashanah, the rough equivalent, I guess we would say, of the Jewish New Year. Uh, biblically, uh, you know, this is uh, something that is described for us in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Uh, We're told the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Uh, Interestingly, uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, literally that means the head of the year, uh, is also known as Yom Turah, uh, or the the day of trumpets. Now, the term teruah uh, literally means to shout or to make a noise. And so uh, Rosh Hashanah traditionally is ushered in by a, uh, a rabbi or another individual uh, giving a blast with the shofar, one of those ram's horns that you've seen. And maybe if you've gone to Israel, you even purchased one, brought one home as a souvenir. Uh, so uh, that's uh, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, some of the details about uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, are uh, really interesting. Uh, it is a t- the beginning of a 10-day period that leads up to the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. Uh, these 10 days uh, are called the Yomim Noraim, or the Days of Awe, in modern Judaism. And, and by days of awe, uh, what it means is a time where people are going to focus specifically on their relationship with God, especially in terms of doing uh, introspection, uh, asking the Lord to reveal to them uh, you know, the, the uh, sins of, that they've committed, to make amends to the people they've wronged in the previous year, to ask forgiveness uh, for any of the vows that have been broken. And so uh, Rosh Hashanah ushers in really kind of a time of repentance. But also, interestingly, uh, during Rosh Hashanah, there is a common greeting or a blessing that is exchanged during this time, and it roughly translates in this way. May your name be inscribed, because according to the rabbis, it is on this day that God decides who is going to live or who is going to die in the next year. And so if your name is inscribed in God's book, uh, then you're good. The righteous are written in the book of life, but the wicked are written into the book of death on this particular day. So um, it, is, biblical, by the way. it is a day of destiny, if you will, according uh, to the rabbis. Now, uh, the people written into the book of death are given these 10 days uh, until Yom Kippur to exercise repentance and self-examination and then 
they get the opportunity to seal their faith. And on the Day of Atonement, everybody has his name inscribed into one of the two books. Your destiny really is decided uh, along these lines. So what does this have to do with uh, Bible prophecy? Well, if uh, you've been on social media today, whether it's uh, X or Twitter as it used to be known, Facebook, uh, uh, Truth Social, Gab, you name your favorite uh, social media site, uh, one thing you'll notice, and this is especially true on uh, the Twitter X feed where we have uh, our particular uh, hangout there, is that uh, the subject of the rapture uh, came up repeatedly. So much so, <laughs> I even had to uh, uh, re, uh, retweet this or I don't re-exit, I don't know uh, what, what you call it anymore. Share. But uh, they had an excerpt from the uh, Christian classic uh, 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 the uh, the uh, movie about the last days that uh, that essentially pioneered all the movies on the last days, A Thief in the Night. And uh, <laughs> if you've never seen it, uh, I mean, as far as uh, cinematic values is, are concerned, you know, maybe not the greatest in the world. Uh, you know, when I uh, originally uh, saw it, you know, I thought, well, this will little cheesy but uh, watching the uh, excerpt that a fellow uh, put up on uh, a thief in the night uh, that showed some of the highlights of it uh, the gist of it is is that the the rapture happens this woman is uh, 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 married to a Christian and he keeps telling her that you really need to get right with the Lord and she's like ah well, he goes into the bathroom to shave and uh, you know it's the classic <laughs> Twilight Zone like scene uh, where the uh, shaver's going on, and she's saying, honey, you know, and this and finally goes in there, and the, the uh, shaver is just sitting there in the, the sink going away, and, you know, shows a guy pushing a lawnmower, and suddenly he's gone, and and then a guy from Unite shows up on television, that the U UN has come together to bring order to this. And the, the fascinating thing to me about uh, the guy in Unite, and I hadn't seen the movie for a while, but the guy on Unite seemed like a nicer version of Klaus Schwab to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I kind of thought, boy, this seemed to be really kind of cheesy and overdone. And, you know, people were getting the, uh, the citizenship mark, the mark of the beast. And, you know, all these signs were going up, citizens only, and people asking if they want on their right hand or their <clears throat> forehead and, and all this. And this, this girl just doesn't want to get the mark of the beast. And I, I won't... Uh, give away the rest of the plot <laughs> but uh the, the the bottom line though is that uh watching this uh i used to think it was kind of corny and cheesy and far-fetched until of course we went through uh the pandemic and saw how quickly things can change in this world so a uh, little little sobering if you will if you go on our twitter feed uh at uh, scott r4h you can uh, click on that and watch i think it's like a six minute excerpt of, of that particular movie. But uh, why then all this talk about the rapture and the end times associated with uh, Rosh Hashanah? Well, as we mentioned, Rosh Hashanah is not only a time of the Jewish New Year celebration, but it also is involved with the blowing of trumpets. Uh, and uh, that is a big part of all of that. And there are those that will take a look at passages like First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 15 that says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, the, the reason I think uh, rapture was trending so heavily this weekend is uh, there is a school of thought, uh, and I'm not sure it's a well-schooled thought, but uh, a strong school. school of thought, a particular way of thinking about prophecy that says that, uh, that all biblical events, significant biblical events, are going to be tied into uh, these Jewish festivals, like, mm-hmm. uh, again, Jesus being sacrificed on the Passover, certainly a very important thing, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was associated with all of that, the examination of uh, the lamb that would go uh, be sacrificed in the Passover, and all these details would come together. Certainly uh, intriguing things, but there are those who will take this and say, well, see, uh, the rapture is going to happen with this uh, trumpet of God, Therefore, this Jewish festival that is involved with the blowing of trumpets is going to be the day that God comes for his people at the rapture. And they will go into all these uh, very uh, intricate and uh, ornate uh, arguments to support this particular position. Well, people ask us, uh, what do we think about that? Well, um, I'd love it if the rapture happened today. I I think that would be a great thing. But does it have to happen on Rosh Hashanah, or the day of the the trumpet, if you will. No, it does not. Why do we say that? Why do we believe that that those who say it must happen on this day in the calendar have uh, gotten things wrong? Well, in fancy terms, the doctrine of imminency. In simple terms, I'll just quote Jesus on this. He said, no man knows the day or the hour, that when it comes to the revelation of the next order of things, the coming of the Lord, not necessarily to rule and reign, but for the preservation of his people, the means of escape before judgment begins to fall has been set at a time that is unanticipatable. And that would mean that, of course, people who missed the rapture would know that the time and day and hour would be. That wouldn't contradict the words of Jesus. But to the audience and category of people he was speaking to, there is no way for us to use some convoluted, and I'll say that intentionally, uh, biblical interpretation method in order to calculate the day or the hour of the Lord's return. It would directly contradict the words of Jesus, and frankly, regardless of how you handle Scripture, I would take the plain over the obscure, or in this case, the deceptive. Yeah, and, and what a lot of people don't realize is uh, they say, oh, well, but this is a call for people to get right with God and, and so on. And, and, and it, it very, very well may be, and if this is something that stirs somebody up to consider the possibility that Jesus could return, boy, I've got uh, no problem with that. I think that's always a good thing. But here's the thing that we've got to understand. The book of Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, we are told, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now notice what our attitude is to be towards the coming of Jesus, looking for 
the I guess for lack of a better term uh, to use the uh, high flute and grammar looking is a participle it means an ongoing action but it's a present active participle in the Greek it means it's to be a lifestyle for us it doesn't mean oh my goodness I hadn't thought about the Lord coming back for quite some time but Rosh Hashanah is coming up boy you know once I get through Rosh Hashanah then I have to worry about the Lord coming back again so I can <laughs> kind of do my thing and then get my act together again before the next Rosh Hashanah well no that's that's not the message of prophecy that's why Jesus continually said his coming was to use the theme of the famous prophecy movie like a thief in the night mm. it's not anticipatable we need to be prepared for it at any hour at any time uh, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, I saw another interesting thread uh, that had to do with a uh, group of individuals who decided to leave their home in Kentucky, bring a group out to plant a church in a very unchurched area in Los Angeles. And uh, they were doing that uh, because they believed that uh, they really needed to get the message of God's word out and that Jesus could come at any time. And so they looked at themselves to describe it as uh, spiritual kamikazes. Uh, you know, they were just going to go in there and they're going to give it their all because Jesus could come in any moment. But then they said, well, they were teaching through the book of Daniel. And I'm still really not sure how they got this out of the book of Daniel. But uh, they said, well, they were teaching through the book of Daniel. They came to the conclusion of the idea of post-millennialism that uh, you know that uh, the the uh, the Lord is not going to uh, you know visit the earth with the tribulation that we're just going to keep reaching out and making things better and better each generation and eventually the world is going to be so reached with the gospel that uh, we'll just be able to Jesus is going to come back and we'll just hand him the keys and he'll take over when the earth is just right yeah exactly <laughs> so they they said oh we came to this realization that that this was far more optimistic and you know here we were in this place and and you know we were we were telling all these people to make all these sacrifices to reach these people because Jesus could come at any moment but then we realized that uh, we just need to be taking the long approach and, and and so we left behind that church plant and we ended it and we went back to Kentucky and we found this great church that teaches uh, post-millennialism and and oh it's just been wonderful to be able to see this and and uh, and, and so on and, and and so my response to it was okay you came to this conclusion about the last days in the end times and that caused you to pull the plug on a work of God that was reaching people in an unchurched area, you pulled the rug out from under all these people who left with you from Kentucky, made all these sacrifices to be there in this place by just ending the church because you thought, well, we don't have that motivation anymore. And now you feel like it's a good thing that you've gone back to some comfy suburban church in Kentucky where you know you can sit around and say, well, the Lord's not coming for long long time and we're just going to try to make the world a little bit better until he does i said what was good about that i, I it, it eludes me so you know it, it's very very true bad doctrine right can lead to bad decisions in life and that was kind of the point that these guys mm -hmm. were trying to make but i don't think they were quite making the point they thought they were making because as soon as we set aside 
the imminent coming of Jesus, that he could come at any moment. Jesus himself warned mm -hmm. about that kind of an attitude in not a very positive way. In uh, Matthew 24 and verse 45, we're told, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in their due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and in an hour that he's not aware of, he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, I'm not the sharpest theological tool in the shed, but I think I can figure something out. I don't want to be like that guy. And the best way to not be like that guy is to come, not to come to that conclusion, my master delays his coming. In other words, I don't have to worry about the Lord coming at any time. And properly understood, uh, you know, the idea that Jesus could come anytime isn't a worry. It's a source of anxiety. Man, the more I see what's going on in this world, yeah. it sounds like a real upgrade to me. And if you love Jesus and you want to see Jesus face to face, well, then there's only two ways that's going to happen. You're either going to go to him through the valley of the shadow of death. And, you know, again, a very dear man that I love very much mm -hmm. did that. And he's in heaven uh, this week, Jack Burns. Uh, and, you know, I kind of envy him, uh, you know, just stopping to think what it must be like for him to see the Lord and be completely healed and you know, to, to, to be everything that God created him to be. I, I kind of envy that. And we'll either go through that same process or the Lord's going to come back to us and snatch us out in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Mm. He, we're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Mm. If I live my life like the Lord could come at any moment and say he doesn't come in my lifetime, you know what? I'm still going to end up in that same place as Jack Burns did because I love the Lord's appearing. But if I start to say to myself, well, you know, there's still an awful lot of people out there that need to be reached, or I think this prophecy has to be fulfilled first before the rapture can happen, so I don't really need to worry about it, so I can kind of put my, my Christian life on pause or take my foot off the pedal, so to speak, because, uh, you know, after all, you know, there's, there's a lot of time there. We don't want to rush into anything. Um, it's not the way I want to go. It's a, still a strange motivation, too, to stop doing a ministry project like that. And there are plenty of other strong motivations to put the pedal to the metal, even if you are a post-millennialist. Uh, yeah, I just well, don't understand that. But. Well, there you go. <laughs> bad, bad doctrine yeah. makes bad decisions. So, And that kind of throws a wrench in the works for them when they are waiting for the world to be a certain state. That means that Jesus could not come at any time. Well, and the other thing I always, I've always questioned is, Postmillennialism was really popular before World Wars One and Two, but if World Wars One and Two in the 20th century taught us anything, this world ain't getting better. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not. If 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 you've been on social media today, you know it's not getting more godly by the day. In fact, it's kind of getting worse. Now, isn't there so, a Bible prophecy that does say that the gospel should be preached to the whole world, but it doesn't mean that. The whole world should come to Christ. Well, the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world, but how much of that's going to happen in the tribulation? Entirely. Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, Revelation 14 notes that in detail, but when, and this is kind of an olive branch to any school of eschatology, when people, 
for those of you who don't speak fancy, that means study the end times. Uh, when we're talking about the issue of the gospel being preached to all nations, there's usually two ways people go about that passage. They're either talking about from sea to shining sea, every single conscious, willing, and able human being that is uh, literate or uh, in any way of the capacity to hear the gospel. The others, and I think there is some merit to this, are going to note the sufficiency of those who will hear the gospel before that time, where we see, for instance, in Paul's letters that he mentions the gospel is being preached to the entire world, when in reality Paul and the other apostles had simply reached the Roman Empire, so to speak. It's not to say that God's leaving anyone out of the process, but it's noting the language consistently within the text. The point being made, though, is this. When it comes to Matthew 24 and the outline that Jesus gives of the time of the end, there are groups of people, usually post-millennialists, some preterists and others, but those who would take the perspective that prophecy has been fulfilled, the, the past fulfillment, that's what preterist means, um, would use Matthew 24 as their format and structure for how the end times are going to go, and then they would read Revelation in and under that authority. Now, I'm the last person to shame somebody for making the direct words of Jesus a high authority and how you interpret the Bible. However, we, in a pre-millennial position, use the book of Revelation itself as the format for a chronological overview of what we call the end times. The last days, and they can be used interchangeably, but we'll define our terms, would be different from the last days. The last days categorically would be the time and place in which Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now the gospel is being preached to all nations. That's the last days, the last stage of God's dealings right. with man in this, uh, I guess, uh, pre- promise fulfilled to Israel type state. But the end times, the tribulation period, those kinds of deals, we're still in anticipation of that because we have a futurist view. And then there's others who would take an idealist view, people who reject the whole concept entirely, say it's all symbolic. Other titles like idealism are usually in this camp. And then there's people who just distance themselves from the controversy, and they call themselves pan-trib. Uh, it'll all pan out in the end. Now, I'm, again, I would shy away from that position because encouraging yourself to less knowledge of God's Word is not as noble as, say, the preterist view of Matthew 24. But the point being made is just that. We both use Jesus's plain statement, no man knows the day or the hour, as an authority over cult groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, who have tried to predict and failed to establish the rapture over 20 times in the last 200 years. We use it as a dismissal of modern-day false prophets like Harold Camping and others who would put themselves forward and say, no, 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 this is new revelation, or find some loophole like, well, it says no man knows the day or the hour. I'm not joking, but I'm a woman, and so God can reveal these things to me. It it's completely nonsensical. But the point of emphasis is this. There's a reason why the conclusions we come to about the end times aren't a salvation issue, because it does require a lot of information. But we do consider it a red flag if they insist upon a view, and it shows a very unstable or inconsistent or unfruitful like the example of the post-millennialist uh, view of the Scripture and how it's impacting your Christian life. So for those listening at home, and understand this as well, to post-millennialist, pre-millennialist, pan-millennialist, whatever you want to call yourself, when it comes to the Christian life, all of our attitudes, and I hope that we can all agree on this foundation, 
should be living in anticipation of standing before the Lord face to face. The pre-trib position gives you a direct point of reference to the rapture. The post-millennial position gives you an overall and ultimate sense that this is all going to be something I answer for before God. That's fine. The idealist would say, well, I'm just focusing on what God's doing in my life now. Again, I'd question how you're going about that or what's motivating you, but I hope the Spirit's in it. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, if you're just distancing yourself from the controversy, hey, I understand. There are weird people in end-time circles, and I can get why you'd want to have a little hands-off. But on this day of the Feast of Trumpets, note and recognize that regardless of the hysteria, as long as we're getting in the Bible, make sure that we're letting the full counsel of God's Word determine how we interpret other things, and I think you'll be fine. But noting as well, if you start to backbite and devour other sheep, you abuse your fellow servants, as Jesus said, that's probably a red flag, and it applies as much to me as to you. I know I can be harsh in rebuke and exhortation, but we don't go out of our way to say, and anyone who doesn't uh, believe in a rapture is a false teacher and a false prophet. No, uh, there's been plenty of witnesses and many different perspectives on the end times throughout the years, and if you'd like a very, uh, I wouldn't say dry, but a very fact-by-fact, claim-by-claim, quote-by-quote summation of how people have handled this throughout the years, I'd recommend the book Dispensationalism Before Darby. It's by William C. Watson. And he just documents, and uh, Adrian, if you could bring the camera up here, um, the uh, various views of the end times throughout history and the reasons they came to it why certain views were more popular among others, the negative motivations, the positive motivations, and being able to give everyone credit at face value. But when it comes to it, make sure that whatever your understanding of God's Word is and how it practically applies to your life, it's not only tested through Scripture, but even more importantly, and we'll just leave you with this before we get to the questions, it is just as much tested as it is consistent with Scripture that as you are going about your Christian life, that as you are modeling the character of Jesus Christ, that where this ultimately puts us gives him the ultimate glory. Mm. I think if, regardless of your position, we can agree on that, then we'll let reality catch up mm. with whoever's, uh, I guess, off on the semantics. Yeah. By the way, did you know that the Simpsons have an episode where they predict the rapture? Yeah. No, really? Yeah, <laughs> Homer uh, uh, predicts it. He gets it wrong by like two seconds, so it's not te wow. technically heretical. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, why is it that those who come from a Reformed tradition always tend to lean towards a post-millennial view? I, I've never Anti understood. Anti-Semitism and replacement theology. But why is that part and parcel with, you know, Reformed in the sense that um, when I think of reform, well, I think that, strictly... That, that's, that, I guess that's painting with a pretty broad brush. I mean, John MacArthur, for instance, would consider himself to be part of uh, reformed theology, but uh, his uh, eschatology is, yeah. uh, you know, anything but, you know. Tend to be. Uh, but, tend to be. but, I, you know, I just think there, that one of the things that I've seen fuel uh, replacement theologies or, you know, this idea that God has done with Israel, that now all of the promises that he's made to Israel have been spiritualized and given to the church, uh, a lot of it is uh, anti-Semitism, straight mm. up. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, it was uh, Augustine that first started throwing this stuff about uh, as uh, a way of uh, being able to explain uh, why the Jews, by and large, uh, rejected uh, the gospel during his time. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther, boy, you want to read uh, some anti-Semitic stuff, read some of Luther's writings about that. 
I really do think that one of the uh, the really uh, tragic deceptions that Satan works into the minds of people to discredit the gospel is to say, oh, it's the Jews' fault. Oh, those Jews out there, you know, they're the synagogue of Satan, you know, and uh, and uh, you know, we now are the new Israel, you see, and we don't have to worry about them any longer. Uh, you know, the, the, the handsprings that you have to do to get the clear teachings of, uh, of the Word as far as what God has in store for the Jewish people uh, to fit into that kind of a, a framework, you know, are, are mind-boggling to me. And some people who are really careful expositors of the Word just kind of blank at some of these passages. Uh, if you ever find yourself in a place where you're saying, well, this doesn't mean what it clearly says, uh, I think you're kind of in trouble. Mm. So, but uh, again, I don't want to paint with uh, a broad brush and say that everybody that uh, you know, buys into Reformed theology is an anti-Semite. No. Um, it, just, it just ain't so. But mm. uh, a lot of it has to do with the idea that uh, we're the church and uh, we're the Israel of God and uh, God is done with the Jewish people and has no more need for them. But nothing mm, could be I further e. from the truth. I.e. Yeah. replacement theology. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. that's what that means, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of the last days, Mary wanted. Uh, Mary asked, uh, I had a lot of things going through my mind about a video I saw on TikTok. Many people have the assumption that we are living in the last days, which I believe we are, but I don't know about this peace deal with Israel and Iran. While I'm excited about going home to be with the Lord, I'm worried about my family not being ready. So are we in the last days? And what uh, what peace deals are are it, could Mary be describing here? Well, um, she was asking about an article that we wrote some um, moons back about the uh, uh, Abraham Accords and so forth. But when it comes to the question about the last days, there's no question about it. The book of Hebrews opens with that uh, categorically placing us in these, not those, but these last days has spoken to us by his son. So as the son has revealed himself, that's put us in the last days. Um, that then being said, we need to understand, uh, this is the key to your question, when it comes to any anxiety about the rapture and am I ready or am I going to miss it, you know, the, the people left in the church are scarier than the people who got taken, right? How do I know that I'm not going to be left behind? And it's a very sobering question and one that Paul encouraged when he said that you should test yourself to see if you're in the faith lest you fail the test. Well, what's the test? Well, it comes down to two simple questions. Do you believe who Jesus proved himself to be in a moment of history and how he did so? If you believe in your heart, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that Jesus is Lord, literally Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says that that's a work of the Holy Spirit and that the spirit that indwells you, according to Ephesians, Romans, and pretty much all of Paul's letters at some point, uh, makes a point of emphasis, maybe not Philemon, but you get the yeah. point, <laughs> uh, makes a point of emphasis in saying this is the seal of promise. This is our assurance of salvation, God's down payment, his earnest, his assurance that agrees with our heart, First John chapter 3, I believe, says, makes a point of emphasis on that. So if we belong to God, if we come to him on his terms, then we are, as Joel chapter 2, believe it or not, would say, are saved. 
Now, if you can categorically say that I do, in fact, believe who Jesus was, who he claimed himself to be, and how he proved it through his resurrection from the dead, that I can read 1 Corinthians 15 and join the 500 witnesses who saw it firsthand, then that means that you belong to him. If you're worried about your family, then you can just simply ask them that same question. If they have that assurance, then you can be comforted. If they don't, then you've got a ministry right there without having to leave your own house. But note that that is the comfort. Fall back on reality, fall back on the simple, and then when it comes to the semantics, it all stands or falls on that first point, the gospel, the good news, the fact that God does exist, that he cares about us, and that he showed us that's the case in person through his death and his resurrection, just so that uh, we can't wiggle with it. But people have tried in throughout history, and they'll ultimately answer to him for it. What you can do and what all of us can do is ask us that question every single day. Do I believe what Jesus said and how he proved it? The words that backed up the deeds and the deeds that backed up the words. Those miracles were not done in a corner. The death of Jesus is more documented than any other historical figure, even the existence of most Roman emperors. And then noting that we have more eyewitnesses to, to support the resurrection, more embarrassing accounts that give validity to those reports, and even more importantly and significantly, earlier sources to verify the gospel accounts than any other event in ancient history. We have more reason to believe than to doubt that what the disciples, that through their testimony, as Jesus himself prayed in John chapter 17, would be what we believe, by which and whose testimony through which we would believe. That is our assurance of salvation, that we will either go to him when death finally knocks on our door or when he comes for us. That's the sole factor that qualifies us, not that we're free from sin, not that we've repented or confessed, not that we're a part of the right church or observe the right traditions and ceremonies. What have you done with Jesus? That's mm. all that God cares <clears throat> about. This spirit will either sort out the rest or ultimately will be burned mm. away in his presence. And let us not forget that as far as those who are family, you're worried they don't know, all the more reason to live out the ministry that is given to us, the ministry of reconciliation that's been given to all believers. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things I would just say, if I can offer a word of encouragement and comfort, a couple things, because I have a lot of people in my family don't know the Lord. Uh, the thing that brings me a lot of comfort, uh, A, is this. Uh, God is far more interested and invested in their salvation than I will ever be. Uh, he gave his son so that they could have eternal life and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with him. Uh, it just reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? You know, God is so concerned about giving each and every person every possible opportunity to be saved, that he made it possible by the, the sacrifice of his son. The heavy lifting, in a sense, has been done. We're told the Holy Spirit is here for one reason, one primary reason, uh, and it's not necessarily to give us Holy Ghost goosebumps and spirit shivers when we're worshiping. It's to convict the world of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. That's how Jesus defined the ministry of the Holy Spirit mm. in John chapter 16 and verse 9. Well, you know, again, he's working overtime on doing that. Uh, we can speak to people uh, with our words. We can impact them from the outside in, but the Lord can touch them from the inside out. So we need to remember how invested God is in all of that. And the other thing that it always encourages me is this. People ask me, how many people you saved in your ministry? None. I've 
haven't saved anybody. I can just point them to the person who does save them. Now, that's really key because sometimes I think in our, our love and our zeal for the Lord and our, our desire to see the best for our family, we think that, well, maybe my family aren't Christians because of something I've said or haven't said, something I've done, something I haven't done. And, you know, we got to be really careful that we don't take a burden on our shoulders that God has never given us to bear. Uh, what I do is when I know I'm going to have an interaction with my family, uh, even when I don't, I'll, I'll pray and say, Lord, uh, give me divine appointments. Give me the opportunity to be able you know, to share. Um, you know, help me not to be the one that chases people around the dinner table with a big King James Bible and says, listen to me about God. And kind of like you mentioned, Adrian, you know, if we live lives where we demonstrate the peace and love of Jesus, I guarantee you, you might get mocked for it. You might get talked behind the back for it. Uh, all these different things might happen. But I'll guarantee you, when the chips are down and things are really rough, uh, it's amazing how many times even the most hard-bitten people in our families will come to us and say, hey, could you put a word in mm. for me with a man upstairs or something? Is, and, and then you've got an opportunity to be able to really share and share effectively. Mm. So, and maybe it's not going to be you. Maybe it's not going to be me. Maybe we're not mm. going to be the ones who reach our families. God can use all kinds of people, but God's the one who draws them. You know, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father mm. draws them first. He didn't say, no one can come to me unless you guys really get your act together and be winsome for me. <laughs> uh, then you get there. Now, that doesn't mean that frees me to be a jerk or not to care about them. I want to demonstrate. I want to be exhibit mm. A of the love of Jesus in the lives of others, mainly by having a vital and dynamic and growing relationship with Jesus myself uh, and sharing out of the overflow. Yeah. If we do that, then I think we're going to be okay. The greatest defense of the gospel that we can show the world is our genuine love for one another as believers. Yep. Well, thank you for that, and thanks for the question. Hope that was uh, helpful for you. Uh, speaking of uh, living as Christ in the world, Renee had a question. How are you taking all the immorality happening all around you? Are you doing a lot of praying? And what scriptures will help us to understand and pray? Just living in a, we're living in Babylon, so to speak. <laughs> well, the, the first and I think most important thing that every believer can take as a comfort is that this shouldn't come as a surprise. In Matthew 24, going back to that again, uh, Jesus told us this is something that we should expect when it says in verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But, verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that uh, idea of coldness isn't speaking of the temperature of your skin, but more the uh, vitality of your heart. Being discouraged or bogged down or even embittered by the state you see the world in, every generation's had to deal with that to some degree. And I think it's a double-edged sword. The Internet has certainly made uh, sharing the gospel and getting access to a lot of good in this world has also given us more exposure than any other generation of just how ugly this world can be and it can be overwhelming so when we you know are looking for posts like hope in humanity restored or this is the reason why i can't get out of bed in the morning y you see both on portrayal pretty regularly and so the idea is first of all 
when we expose ourselves to these things, the first and most important thing is that if you start to feel a little cold-hearted, and we understand that picture, or you just feel kind of discouraged or embittered by just, man, these people hear the gospel time and time again, and I still hear these dumb objections. Mm -hmm. These people know that they're lying, and yet they would still say this to their sheikhs or to to their uh, congregates and so forth. What is the matter with these people? Is there any hope for the gospel left? The first and most important thing you could do is watch your input, because that could be (laughs) a sign that you're uh, maybe not uh, going into an environment where it's healthy for you mentally, let alone spiritually. The second thing to do when it comes to response, and you're saying, should we pray more? Obviously, instead of pursuing the negative in this world, pursue the one positive thing we have in this world. And the answer isn't through, you know, puppy dog or cat videos and so forth. Those can help lift up emotions. I like them. I do like them. (laughs) I prefer the ones live at home. But the idea should be, okay, if this is the way the world is going, and I go to God's Word and say, yeah, it's to be expected, then I can take comfort from that. If I'm given examples of people, for instance, in the book of Acts, and I see how they responded, then I have some instruction. I can see by the work of the Spirit that was uh, done in history before, I can go, well, when it comes my turn, I'm sure I may have the opportunity to follow their example, and wouldn't that be an honor? And on and on it goes. But just get your nose in your Bible, seek fellowship with God, pursue the singular positive rather than the massive negatives, that would be helpful. Don't just avoid poison, but pursue health. And the third thing I think is probably going to be brought up and reiterated is as you have the opportunity not just to avoid the negative and pursue the positive, be a positive. Pursue your own relationship with God to the point where it starts to give people one less excuse to be bummed out themselves. That can be a ministry in of itself, Mm. that they, through your good works, may glorify God, even when they blaspheme you as wrongdoers. little disjointed, but that's what the Apostle Peter said. He knew a little bit about dealing with persecution and ugly people around him. I heard one of our other teachers here on campus say that joy is not something you receive, but something you're commanded to do. Yeah, hope fulfilled. Yeah. You put your hope in something and then wait for the uh, weasel to pop, so to speak. That really Set spoke to me because I thought Joe's joy was something that's supposed to happen to me when circumstances are the way I want them to be. No. And I can be in any circumstance and just choose to be have joy. And right, right. It's that, that forward-leaning uh, emotion, I think C.S. Lewis made the comment on that. Uh, and it's also something that strengthens us quite mm-hmm. a bit. You know, the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, I think uh, the, the scriptures you shared on that were, were right on. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how many times, you know, we'll see people saying, you know, we're living in Babylon now. And, you know, I read a, an article by a professed agnostic that talked about the uh, return of paganism and how we're going to really come to appreciate what a Christian-based society was when we see how life really was when paganism dominated. Uh, when you begin to, you know, I guess there was this uh, uh, internet uh, deal about uh, how many times uh, a day men think of the Roman Empire. And <laughs> I, 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 I contributed by saying, well, I'm teaching through the book of Acts. Does that skew the results? <laughs> kind of hard to, not to teach through the book of Acts and not have the Roman Empire 
come to mind. Well, didn't uh, the Babylon Bee do a follow-up article on that where they said a uh, man who hasn't thought of the Roman Empire in three days starts to think he might be trans? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, but the, I, I guess what it, uh, what it comes down to is, yeah, we may be living in Babylon. And if that's the case, uh, what better uh, thing could we do than not just know these scriptures, as Sean has shared them, but uh, take a look at the life example of a guy who lived in Babylon and seemed to get things pretty right. Daniel, mm-hmm. you know, feel a little worn down, a little grieved by the sin that surrounds us each and every day, feel like you're losing the battle. Well, just imagine how outgun and outman Daniel felt at times in his life were his friends. But God had them there for a specific reason, and God used them in very powerful ways. So uh, you want to be encouraged, man, read through the book of Daniel and see how you can rise above the level of your circumstances. Hmm. Good, good, good counsel, good wisdom, very encouraging. Thank you, and thanks for the question. Um, someone had emailed us about a similar idea of living in Babylon. It's, it's one thing to be a witness to your family or people around you in your sphere of influence, but how do you represent Christ in the workplace? Well, first of all, it's not by uh, taking time where you should be working and uh, saying, well, i got to share the gospel with my coworkers. That's just going to be a poor witness to your boss and say, I don't think I need to hire Christians because they seem to be more an obstacle than an asset. Um, again, going back to the example of Daniel, when it came to what made them such a, I guess, sphere of positive influence in their circle was the fact that as much as depended on them, they would pursue good ethics. But it was noted specifically by uh, Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, the excellent attitude that was in them, the not just the fact that God worked a miracle in uh, light of their obedience, but it was a very, very specific attitude that they brought to how they did emphasize this, their work. They didn't neglect their work. They worked harder than most people would. You note the Protestant work ethic and something. Dan- Daniel and his uh, friends did it first. But the point that needs to be understood in that, if any Christian's going to name the name of Christ, they are doing something the way that Christ would have were he in their shoes. And given the fact that if I were to put myself in the position of, say, a tradesman, I don't think Jesus would do shoddy work if he was in that kind of job occupation. If Jesus was in an office, he wouldn't be taking extra time off when it wasn't the time or place for, quote-unquote, evangelism. Right. He would allow those opportunities to be open to him when his ethics were called, maybe during breaks or maybe after work, but people would know him as the what? the nice guy, the person who does his job, the person who isn't cheating, the person who isn't doing what other people seem to be getting away from. That's what it means to be a Christian witness, someone who can see Christ in you. So when it comes to representing Christ, it's to act like he would in your workplace. Would he be lazy? No. Would he be negligent? No. Would he be rude? No. He would be, obviously, an example of the Father's heart. But when it comes down to it, if we're going to call ourselves Christian, that's the if, we should be the best workers out there. And if you can't offer, you know, quote-unquote, 110%, then don't let people know you're a Christian, mm-hmm. because then that puts you where um, I think the prophet Nathan called David, it is because of you the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be that. Yeah. 
Yeah, great scripture if you want a real good GPS heading uh, for being an excellent employee. is found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Uh, there we read, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. You know, I, I, I love that because, uh, in, in essence, if I want to be an excellent employee, I need to, before I wander in the workplace, remind myself who I'm really working for here. I, I'm working for Jesus. He's my ultimate boss. He's the one that I desire to please. Mm. And if I do that, then I, I love that word, eye service. You know, it, it, it reminds me of a bumper sticker a friend of mine gave me. Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. <laughs> so, you <laughs> know, I mean, busy. sometimes that, that happens in the workplace. You know, oh, the boss is here. You know, you better look like you're, you're doing something. Well, that's eye service, you know, and it's insincere. I think what you mentioned, Sean, is really important. Uh, we've got to be careful that we're not taking time away that is due our employer uh, to even do spiritual things. Mm. Um, you know, there's a time and a place. You know, when I was coaching track, uh, when I was going to uh, seminary, uh, among the other jobs that I had, uh, one of the things they told me was that you couldn't proselytize uh, on school time. You know, and so I took that very seriously. And, you know, uh, when the athletes I was coaching would say, oh, I, I hear you're like going to grad school. What are you studying? I'd say, I can't tell you. And they look at me and go, can't tell us? I said, no, no, I can't tell you. But if uh, you want to find out, ask me after our last meet. I'll be happy to tell you. And it was just like the, the curiosity kind of grew. And, and I did that in a twofold way. It was a great opportunity then to be able to share, you know, what I was studying and why and share my testimony with these guys. And I'd had all season to be able to develop a, a witness with them. But also, it was being true to the people that I was being employed by. I didn't want to be uh, a, another headache for the head coach of that team. Uh, I didn't want to be a headache to that school district. Hmm. I wanted to be a blessing to them. You know, I wanted to do what I did with excellence so that, uh, you know, the, the greatest potential that these kids could have, greatest experience they could have running track, would be uh, the experience that they had. And I prayed for every one of them. You know, I think the other thing that is so key, along with uh, being respectful and realizing that we're there to be an, uh, a, uh, an asset, uh, not a stumbling block uh, at work, is our attitude. Your attitude mm -hmm. is like everything. You know, what is really fascinating to me is in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was the uh, cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And uh, we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 that uh, Artaxerxes looked at Nehemiah and said, you know, why are you downcast? You know, and he says, I'd never been downcast in the king's presence before. You know, and it's like, you know, part of it was if you're the cupbearer of the king, you don't want to harsh the king's mellow. Mm -hmm. A good way to get your head lopped off. But the other side of it was, it tells me something about Nehemiah, that even though he was in, it, in the service of this thoroughly pagan king, he had a great attitude about it. Mm. He was something that lightened the load, not made it heavier. Especially if so, the king notices that yeah. 
and as a contrast when he happened to be really bummed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I mean, with us, it's a contrast if someone sees you smiling. So, you know, so <laughs> keep that in good, mind as yeah, well. Yeah, very good stuff. Very good. Uh, Time for one more question? or? Uh, uh, well, I was going to ask for a little clarification. What, what if you're in a workplace and you are having to engage in part of your work in something that really violates your conscience, like, you know, affirming uh, lifestyles that go contrary to scripture or... I'm not saying engaging in things that are illegal per se, but where do you, do you just bow out or how do you be a witness in those more difficult circumstances? Like if you're a school teacher and you have to teach curriculum that just really rubs against your conscience and you're like, hey, I'm a Christian, this just goes all against everything I believe. And Well, but specifically here in the United States, know your rights, because if they call you to task and say, no, you will share this information or you will show solidarity you will wear the ribbon all that kind of stuff <laughs> those you know seinfeld right <laughs> uh, then you can just say well I'd, I'd like to acknowledge my freedom of conscience and just say no that's the simplest way to put it and then if there are uh, consequences for that kind of action there are people who will support you if you live in third world countries like canada for instance you're not going to have that kind of support but it is something that uh, you can consider god worthy of suffering persecution for when it comes to you know for instance uh, if you live in a sharia compliant country and you're put in a position where your life's on the line then understand as well they hated me they will hate you also they treated the prophets disdainfully before you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you're in good company. That would be the kind of people I'd want to mm-hmm. associate with, those who are taking flack for doing the right thing. Obviously, in the West, we can avoid consequences where possible, but it's not always the case. Understand that uh, we should expect this, just like lawlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the program. Thank you, gentlemen, for the hard work that you do in being here and being taking the time to do the program. We hope that you have a great weekend and we'll be here same place, same time on Monday. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.